Hey guys, it's Sarah. On this episode, Lindsay Gibbs and I discuss her coverage of women's sports, the historical fiction novel that she wrote about survivors of the Titanic, which I did not know anything about, which is crazy. Uh, her dream role uh, when she worked at Think Progress and her new newsletter, Power Plays, which after several months just launched into subscription mode. Uh, take a minute to subscribe to this show. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. You won't miss any new episodes. Rate it, preferably five stars. Leave a review on the iTunes app or uh, wherever you find it. And uh, that way you'll always have it coming right to you, fresh episodes. Uh, by the way, before today's episode, I want to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. That's her dog, by the way. Uh, he doesn't talk, per se, but he does get to ask a question. This week, Mina talks to Greg Rosenthal of the NFL Network with uh, free agency getting going in just about two weeks. So you can find The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. Always good listen. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, my name is Lindsay Gibbs, and I just launched a subscription newsletter and I am now, after four months of working nonstop on it, trying to get back some self-care into my life. <laughs> and I have no clue where to start because it seems so daunting. <laughs> well, okay, so this is interesting because even though I'm someone who has more recently started to be a bit more effusive about making time for, like, working out, massages, watching, you know, Project Runway or other non-sports things, taking a break from work, getting pedicures, all that stuff. I still find that self-care is the first thing to get rescheduled when my Jenga board of a day gets scrambled. But I will say this much. It is a lot easier to only cancel those things that you've set aside for yourself in emergencies if you actually schedule them like you would a meeting or a call, right? So instead of just saying, I'm going to wait and see if I've got some time on Thursday and do something self-care related, whether that's, you know, taking a bath or going to lunch or something, um, schedule it, put it on there. And then worst case, if you desperately need to fill that space with something work related or a family or otherwise, you can do it, but you've got it on there. And then if you try to schedule around it, usually things will fit, not always, but that's my best advice to you as you're powering through this, no pun intended, new world of running power plays, your own newsletter, trying to sell it, trying to get everyone on board, um, you're actually going to be better at your job, a better writer, a sharper wit when you uh, give yourself a break every once in a while. Our brains need time to relax. So even if it's just 10 minutes of meditation or something, put it on a calendar and put it in your phone. Put it somewhere where you're not going to schedule right over it. That is my advice. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Lindsay Gibbs. She's the writer and founder of Power Plays, a newsletter that is, quote unquote, for people who are sick of bullshit excuses and ready to see equality for women in sports. Uh, she's also the co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, an all-female podcast that covers a wide range of sports and social issues. I've been reading Lindsay forever. Um, usually, I think, just like a lot of people, uh, found her on Twitter. And uh, noticed that she was doing incredible coverage for a number of places, most recently Think Progress before Power Plays, uh, on female athletes and women's sports, on the intersection of sports and social issues. Just a really smart writer who tackles a lot of topics that other people are not. And in her Power Plays last couple months, uh, she's done everything from, you know, writing about Kobe's legacy and its totality, how, um, you know, there are men's 
brand new leagues that are willing to lose $375 million and fold before the first season is over. But we say that there's no investment and, and room for investment in women's sports. Why do we decide that it's okay to throw that money away in the name of something new and fresh and, and, and not have done the research and then have things that have existed for decades that just need an injection and, and don't get it. She's written about, um, Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris you know, opening up to her about playing for a homophobic owner in the NWSL, what that means for LGBTQ plus players, all sorts of stuff. And um, in this in this interview, we talk about how she kind of got to where she is from Tisch Film School, right? And working in the America's Next Top Model House, just sort of applying what she what she saw in her film school, how women are treated and and covered by media, both in film and news and everything else, and and realized that that was happening in sports too. And how that caused her to want to essentially now run her own business, balancing editorial content with her finances and budgets and how she did that, how she broke in as a freelance writer. I think it's a great conversation and certainly touches on some of the issues that those of us who are looking for a more diverse set of writers and a more diverse coverage from newspapers and, and websites and TV, um, some of the issues that we've been we've been talking about for a number of years. So I, I hope you guys enjoyed. Here's my interview with Lindsay Gibbs. That's what she said. Super excited to pick the brain of Lindsay Gibbs, not just the way I always do on this podcast where I learn about someone and their path and who they are and how they got there, but also a little bit of big picture because I consider her one of the foremost experts on women's sports and female athletes and not just the actual coverage, but um, the fight for the coverage. And um, she's really monitoring the rest of us as we try to you know, engage in a diversified set of topics and bring sports news about everybody to people who are interested and not just male sports and athletes that we're used to reading about. So um, we're going to go big picture. But first, I want to start small, small, little, tiny Lindsay, uh, (laughs) who was living in Greensboro, North Carolina, and was uh, just a kid watching the Panthers and Tar Heels. And what was it about where you lived or your family or, or siblings or whatever that got you into sports at a young age? Yeah, so, I mean, I was an only child. Um, I I think a lot of it was just kind of stereotypical. Like, my dad would be watching sports a lot, and, you know, that was a way for us to bond. But I just always loved sports. Like, I always, you know, was – I mean, I'm from Greensboro, so I was obsessively into ACC men's basketball and eventually – chose the Tar Heels as a team I was going to root for. And um, I chose that because of a cute boy, but it <laughs> remained an ingrained. Me too. His name part. was Michael Jordan. <laughs> I was my fourth grade crush who I'm not going to name because I'm same, same. Here. Yeah. Very similar. <laughs> I don't know why that seems weird to name now, but it does. Um, and, but yeah, so I just like, I, I remember just always, I would watch the, golf tournaments on the weekends with my dad all the time. I would always be glued to the NCAA tournament and the ACC men's basketball tournament. And then we went to a lot of like local hockey games. Like we had like tickets to, I don't even know what's called anymore, but the minor league of hockey, you know, but yeah. right below the, the NHL. So we had the tickets to those games in Greensboro. And then the Panthers were born um, in 95 and then 96 was their first year playing in Charlotte and I was in fifth grade and my dad had season tickets through his company. So 
think he was supposed to take clients most of the time. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I think it helped that it was just me so he could bring like a client, you know, it was just one daughter, to one kid to bring along. So I ended up going to most of those games and that was the year that they That's made awesome. uh, the NFC championship game. So they made it all the way um, to the NFC championship game. I got to see them beat the Dallas Cowboys in the playoff live. And I was just, I was hooked. Like it was going to those games that made me like a, rabid consumer of sports news and everything sports. And I read that you started out playing, you were a top 10 backstroker in Greensboro in the nine to 10 year old age division. And then after that, it was sort of like, you know, I'm just going to watch from here on out. (laughs) That was like really where you peaked. Yeah. And that was my peak. I was a swimmer. Um, That was what I did. I did a little bit of basketball, but I mainly just like shooting hoops in my, um, in my driveway. Like I wasn't that good whenever I was on teams. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm not athletic. Like I'm just not at all athletic and I'm also not super competitive. I was actually, <laughs> I was a band geek. I played clarinet. I was, me really too. I, I did marching band and oh, then I did a lot of, I did a lot of, in, I mean, I was all in. And then I did a lot of like drama. So I did a lot of theater. I, I want to be an actress for the longest time and so I, in, um, you know, I didn't do team sports in high school, but I would do the plays, you know, I would do cool. theater. Um, and then in, I went to NYU film school. So, um, it's funny cause every step of my life while I've remained a big sports fan, I've been in environments where there are not many sports fans at all. <laughs> <laughs> like even yeah. the guys, like everyone's like, don't use it to bond with the guys. I'm like, the guys at NYU Film School really don't care about sports. <laughs> right, right. I don't know if Tish is the hotbed for uh, for the it's sports really fans not. of the it's world. Really not. Yeah. Um, so you're you're studying film and television production. You love sports, but presumably it hasn't occurred to you to want to work in them. No, not at all. Funny because people used to say like, "Oh, you're." I mean, I would get a lot of growing up. You're a woman. You like sports. That's so weird. Do you want to be like? a sideline reporter or you should, you know, you should work in this. And I just always really brushed it off because I just, that wasn't at all, you know, I did not grow up with a big interest in journalism. I did not ever really think like, I just like to watch sports. Sports were fun to watch. And I was going to write and direct, um, you know, uh, fiction, um, you know, uh, fiction films or television. And that was, that was the primary goal. So you leave Tish and you do what a lot of people, myself included, do when they're pursuing a career in the arts. I was moving to L.A. to try to be a comedian and actress. You were trying to do, you know, your own film and television production. And so you worked on America's Next Top Model doing what? So I was a key production assistant is what they called it, which means I was in uh, I worked in the house where the models live. So this was a New York season and the house and the production office were across town from each other because LA people picked these places, not having any <laughs> idea how hard it was to get like across town, you know, um, on in the seventies, uh, you know, 70 streets in New York. Um, so basically they needed to have a small production staff in the house itself to manage crew coming in and out, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, for sure. But because, you know, they, they had to film the house. So, and you also had to have people like 24 seven. So they would have kind of a main production coordinator in there running things during the day. And then myself and another person who also made more money than I did, we 
split the shift um, morning and night. Like she would come in from 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. to kind of run early morning before the the, um, the main um, boss got in. And then I would take over at 4 p.m. And then when everyone left, like I was, you know, it was my first job and I was in charge. I was getting paid like the lowest rung of the production <laughs> assistants. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of a way for them to get around rules and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I was – I got to, you know, boss people around and do logistics and I actually like all of that stuff a lot right. and certainly learned a lot. I mean, I do not recommend the 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift of anything. It doesn't but, sound like know, it. It was no, what it was. No, it doesn't yeah. sound like it. Um, so you work, you're working sort of television adjacent-ish, maybe not in the gig that you want, but you're kind of working your way towards the things that you want, teaching screenwriting, nannying. And it's interesting that you – we're teaching writing in a way, but that you hadn't really thought about writing as a, as a job. Um, how, how do you discover that you're, you know, you're, you're wanting, you're getting that itch to, to, to write in general, not even just about women's sports. Yeah. I, um, so it, it really came through tennis. I was, was a huge tennis fan. That's something I didn't mention earlier, but um, I've always been a huge tennis fan. And as I got older, I just became more and more obsessed with the sport and, um, I love that it was like a daily sport, a new tournament each week. And so when I was just getting out of college and had a lot of free time because I had no job at first, because uh, 2008 is not a year I recommend anyone graduating um, from college. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot of nothing. And so I just would end up online a lot following these tennis tournaments and like on these tennis blogs um, talking about players. And then one time, I can't remember if this was during Top Model. I think this was during something else. I actually, like, the only, I had this old BlackBerry, and it it was impossible to get to, like, the blogs on the BlackBerry, you know, because nothing was optimized for the mobile yet. And uh, so I downloaded this weird thing called Twitter and started uh, following a few of my tennis friends and, like, tweeting about tennis so I could follow the French Open while I was out doing coordinating stuff on these sets all across the city because I couldn't, you know, that was the only way I could kind of follow and keep up with the news. And through kind of tennis Twitter, I ended up um, meeting so many people, meeting a lot of people who are running their own independent blogs and um, started uh, realizing like some of them were getting credentialed for tournaments just for their own little blogs. So I started just for fun, kind of volunteering, um, with them, if I could get to a tournament, they could get me a credential. And I ended up um, doing, you know, just really kind of getting into that community. I ended up getting an opportunity to write a book really young um, or really soon thereafter, which was a very interesting experience. Um, and I wasn't making much money doing any of this, but it kind of gave me direction while I was nannying and trying to figure out what the next step in my life was. And then soon, you know, people, my stuff was being read and I was, you know, getting more followers on Twitter. And I started to realize, like, oh, like, I can pitch things, you know, to places <laughs> and maybe make money. And because I had already established myself a little bit kind of just in this free world, I used to joke that people would, like, more more established people would follow me back when I followed them because I had 3,000 followers and they didn't realize they were all just, like, lunatic, lunatic tennis fans. <laughs> like, they thought, like, I was way more prestigious than I was. But, yeah, I started pitching. This was way back when it was, like, Sports on Earth and um, the classical and, and vice sports and all that. And I, I, it started with me pitching tennis stuff to them. 
um, and then launching my own tennis website with a couple of other phenomenal writers. And this, I soon realized, like, you know, I can actually make money doing this and I can have some sort of control over it because I was building these relationships with editors and they kept wanting to work with me again. And soon they were interested in taking stuff that wasn't just tennis. And that's, I kind of just like build it up organically from there. I was, I think I was lucky. It was like during the two years where venture capital money was coming into the online media world. <laughs> like we're like, uh, right. you know, there was actually there was money. money like, there was, there was a little bit of money. Like I could get like 200 or $300 for writing a piece, which, you know, seemed a lot better than nanning for a day. Um, so, and then I, I started becoming a columnist for Bleacher Report and that was a really steady gig for a couple of years that, um, you know, I was like their first paid tennis writer. And then they took me to other sports. That was a great experience. Cause they'd be like, Hey, we need you to, um, write about NASCAR, can you? And I, of course I needed money. So I just said, yes, but I never watched a NASCAR <laughs> <Right. laughs> in my life. <laughs> so then I would learn how to like become kind of a pseudo expert on stuff really quickly and, you know, how to research and how to write and how to tell stories when, you know, you weren't an expert. And that's kind of how I became established. And after a few years, you know, I thankfully stopped nannying and was just freelancing full time. Yeah. So let's go back quickly. Tell me about the book. So it was called Titanic, the Tennis Story, and it was a historical fiction novel based on a true story of two men who um, both survived the sinking of the Carpathia, or of the Titanic, and then they met on board the Carpathia, um, which is the ship that rescued the survivors from the Titanic, and then they ended up playing each other in the U.S. Open quarterfinals two years later, which is just Wait, like... Wait, this I mean, is a real story? That's yeah, it's based on a true. Yeah, that's that wow. what I just told you is a true story. Um, I mean, it was phenomenal. So we, you know, I was told to, you know, kind of make it and fictionalize it and pull it out. So I did tons of research and then, you know, made it into um, wrote it as a historical fiction novel. And it came out on the uh, in 2012, which was the 100th anniversary of you know the Titanic sinking. Um, wow. so that was a very interesting um, experience start to finish. What's the hardest part of writing a book? It seems very daunting. Yeah, I think it's literally just writing the book. (laughs) (laughs) Time. It's just actually doing it. Like I, (laughs) I quit nannying for a while uh, to do it because I, um, you know, I wasn't, I was way behind and I ended up like writing it all. Cause one of my problems, and I still do this with articles, like I will over research, right? I don't know when to stop researching. And when it's something as big as like trying to figure out um, these evil stories and what life was like on the Titanic and what the layout was like, so you can write about it, you know, um, do you know where these rooms you're writing about were? Like, I just couldn't stop researching and get to the writing part. So I ended up writing a lot of it in like a three-week fever dream. You know, I left New York and <laughs> stayed with my mom down in, in North Carolina for a few weeks um, and basically just, like, didn't sleep and, you know, focused on getting out these words full-time. And it was yeah, – I don't really even remember much of that process because <laughs> it was – I was so behind. So I wish I could have be like, you write 500 words a day. And that's, right. you know, that's, exactly. that's, that is uh, not my story. <laughs> 
All right. So you're getting all this great experience at Bleacher Report and, and the changeover, which was the tennis website you co-founded. You're, you're doing some other sports outside of the ones that you grew up being a fan of. You're learning what it is to, to kind of learn on the fly. Um, early on, what did you notice, if you noticed anything, about covering women's sports or female athletes versus men's? If they sent you out to cover NASCAR or horse racing or men's college basketball or anything that's sort of like in the nexus of what is often covered versus, you know, you giving yourself an assignment or them giving you an assignment to cover something in the women's world. Did you notice a difference in pay or support or the ability to research online using existing information? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I should clarify, Bleacher Report did not send me anywhere. I did all my work from Bleacher Report from home. So it. it was just me interacting online a lot. Um, they, you know, it was nice they were paying me, but they, you know, it wasn't. Um, I don't think they were sending any writers out at that point. But I, um, yeah, I, you know, I first started really noticing when I was watch, watching tennis full time, and I started really noticing how commentators would talk about the women versus how they would talk about the men. And I think tennis is such a unique um, story, unique sport to view it through because it's this exact same media talking about them. You know, they're earning the same amount of money. They're being broadcast in the same way. And it's the same broadcasters talking about them, yet you can still see a really stark difference. Um, So I would, you know, it would be like Roger Federer would, would, you know, make his way through a tournament without losing a set. And the conversation would be about how great Roger Federer was. Serena Williams would, would win a tournament without losing a set. And the conversation would be about how bad women's tennis is, you know, and how there's no competition. Right. And I started really realizing, like, it reminded me a lot of what I would study in film school about how women are per- portrayed by the media. You know, um, you would have, First of all, there were very few women behind the scenes. I was, you know, my, it was about half of my my class at NYU Film School was women, and a lot of us went in there wanting to write and direct. But by the end, um, there were thirty of us who got an allotment to do a senior thesis film, and I was one of only three women who did. You know, mm-hmm. so um, you know, you saw just women just kind of by you know, not always by other people's choices. They chose these paths, but you would just see, you know, society kind of at play about the choices they would decide to make about uh, their lives going forward. You know, I would realize I was the only one in any of my classes writing about female characters, um, you know, writing about relationship stories. And you just really start to kind of think, you know, there would be a big blockbuster movie that had like Jodie Foster starring in it. And, it would bomb the first weekend and the discourse in the film world would be women can't carry these big movies. And of course, if a male movie, the movie with a man starring in it bombs, that was never the conversation. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I I really started to write a lot about and pitch a lot of stories about how the media was covering um, women in tennis. And that led to, um, me realizing, like, I, I don't watch many women's sports. <laughs> like, I, right. I don't. And so I started to kind of get a little think about, like, why is that? Like, uh, and I started when I when I moved to freelancing full time 
and which meant like I need to come up with more pitches. You know, I didn't have anything supplementing it. So I started just um, setting Google alerts, you know, for all the women's sports. I started, you know, researching sport by sport. Does this sport have a pro league? What's the history of this sport? Um, who are the people I should know? Who do I need to set Google alerts for? And I started realizing, like, I I wasn't going to make anywhere in my career. Like, these these outlets didn't need another story pitched about Tom Brady. You know, they have right. plenty of people, like, covering Tom Brady. But if I could find an angle on these women's sports stories that was universal, these a lot of places were thrilled to have it, right? It wasn't that they were consciously turning down these pitches they just didn't have anyone picking them to them right and nobody on their staff was an expert about that about them um so that's kind of how i really got started with it and then i started questioning why i've never um you know watched why i had no idea there were women's pro soccer leagues in the united states why i didn't watch the WNBA, and um i was i would be like you know i would watch i mean I watched so many hours of SportsCenter as a kid growing up, you know, and I I didn't know any of these names. And so I think once I started really questioning the biases within myself and introducing myself to the game, that was a real shift for me. Um, And I, but I think for me, the power came that I was coming at it from an angle of um, already viewing my thoughts through the lens of the media, because I come from that film background, you know? Yeah. And I understood how important the choices people behind the scenes are make, how, how important those choices that they make are in the way um, people receive. What, yeah. 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 How people are received. And I think once I started kind of questioning that, um, yeah, like I said, that was a real, real game changer for me, but I had to learn, I had to start from scratch with a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, with, with the WNBA, with NCAA women's basketball. I mean, there were some people I'd heard of in passing, but I really was starting from scratch with, with my knowledge level. Well, it's fascinating you said that because I actually took some film classes in college and I, I, as you're talking about it and remembering all the conversations about the male gaze, how very often in film and television, the camera represents a man, the way that we look at women on screen, whether it's panning up and down to their bodies and sexualizing them versus the way men are shot to be imposing and confident and whatever else, especially in, you know, older films. Um, it's, it's fascinating to apply more of those ideas into just media in general, even when it's news providing or, you know, sports coverage and, Carrie Potts, in case people are interested, I had her on this podcast a while back and, uh, she talked a ton about, she, she gives, um, presentations to different networks and ESPN specifically, that's who she's based with is, is ESPN on coverage in terms of discussing domestic violence, sexual assault and crimes like that and how the words that you use tell people how to feel about it and who's been victimized and who should be sympathized for. And it's terrible most of the time. People do it all wrong because they don't know anything about it. And it's interesting to apply that to women's sports because there are so many people. And I just went on a rant about this uh, last week. Um, you know, Sabrina Ionescu does something great and it gets covered very briefly, which is great, but then it gets covered with everyone mispronouncing her name because they didn't take the time mm-hmm. to care about the story, even as they were being told, this is important. This is leading sports center. This is, you know, something you got to talk about on your show. This is a big deal. No one's ever done this. And it, it's, and, and that is one of the interesting things to me. And I want to get back to your timeline, but, um, this idea of if we get so predisposed to view and digest things, not just in sports, but society, 
those things are so subconsciously embedded within us that we don't even realize that we're just yeah. mirroring them and continuing them. And that's why when people ask, you know, how do we fix, you know, women in sports, yada, yada, I'm like, we fix the world first because the larger issue <laughs> is systemic sexism that has existed forever. And if we don't value women beyond what they look like anywhere, why would we suddenly value them in sports beyond whether we think that they should shorten their shorts and, you know, push up their boobs or whatever. So, um, but it's interesting that that connection between that and sort of like the film world. All right. So you're, you're doing all this, you're learning about the women's stuff. You're, you're starting to realize these, um, you know, inadequacies in the coverage inequities in terms of time. Um, and is that around the same time that you get to think progress? Cause that feels like such a perfect sort of mix for what you want to write about and, and the outlet. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I was not, really actively looking for a full-time gig, honestly, because I didn't think one existed doing what I was doing. <laughs> um, and I was really building a career, like half of my life was writing straight columns for Bleach Report. You know, I had a contract with them with a certain amount per month, and that was kind of steady. And then pitching around, and I had, you know, I was writing a lot about, this was around the time, I mean, it was it was the Ray Rice stuff, right? People were suddenly like, oh, it would help if there was a woman that could do this. Cause right. I don't know how to talk about it. It was a huge turning point. Yeah. It was a huge turning point. I wrote a lot about ESPNW during that time, actually, and just, like, mm-hmm. how great you guys were doing covering it and how much, like, it helped bring all of you to the forefront because all of a sudden ESPN was like, oh, we, we need different voices here. You know, like, this, this, is, this is helpful. Oh, you can talk about this. Um, and so, yeah, it was a real turning point, and... But when I, when I saw the job posted at for Think Progress, it was one of those weird, like, oh, wait, this is actually the perfect job for me. Like, I don't think I've ever <laughs> gone into a job application that confident before. And, of course, like, it still takes a lot of luck, like, getting my resume to the top of the pile, you know, um, to even be selected. But I did end up getting the job. I moved to Washington, D.C. This was in the fall of 2015, um, and yeah, so for four years, I was the lone sports reporter in a progressive political newsroom. And boy, was it an interesting four years to be in a new in a political newsroom. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, yeah, for all the political changes, but also the, like you said, there's been a sort of rapid change even in the last four or five years in sort of understanding what kind of coverage needs to be given to the intersection of social issues and sports. And unfortunately now we call all social issues politics because it seems to be such a very clear divide between one side and the other, even though we've always talked about them in other ways. It's just that now it's very stark, uh, you know, what side quote unquote you're on. Um, But yeah, so you, you wrote about anything from athlete activism to how universities are handling, you know, crimes from players, uh, equal pay, all that stuff. I wonder because the people that I follow, most of them are, in my opinion, <laughs> I was going to say on the right side of things, but in my opinion, care about uh, writing about diverse topics, care about hearing from diverse voices and love you. Are, like you're very well respected among people who care about those things. But I'm curious, especially at somewhere like Think Progress, where a lot of people clicking the link are going to go in with a bias about the place they're reading it what kind of reaction you got to some of the more difficult stories that you wrote, um, particularly about topics that tend to be, you know, third rails for people. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was tough. Um, first of all, there was, 
there were a lot of people who, you know, from the far right wing who would read every single, um, and I'm not talking about the average reader at this point, like I'm talking about, you know, really extreme, but who would read every Think Progress article hoping to turn it into an article themselves being like, you know, Think Progress writer, think, you know, men should beat the women in sports all the time. You know what I mean? Just like, you know, purposely misconstrue what you're saying. Um, And there there were a lot of people and there's still a lot of people in the industry. I mean, there's still places that I know will never hire me because I worked at an openly, you know, progressive newsroom for a few years. So, um, you know, you know, that's a part of it going, going into, well, I don't know if I knew how quite how much of a part of it would be uh, or how much I would hear from executives that I was too, you know, they, they would love to give me a full-time job, but it's just, you know, they would get too much pushback. Um, but I think that, yeah, I mean, I would write about stuff that was really hard for people to hear that people didn't want to hear because, we don't want to navigate these gray areas. It's uncomfortable. Um, but I, I began to really find a lot of solace in other women in the industry. And I've been lucky just to have so, so much support from, I don't know, people like yourself and others in the industry who were kind of higher up the ladder, but who would share and seriously consider my work. And so I never really let it get me uh, down. It was always easy. And I think it also helps keep it in perspective when you are in a newsroom of people who are writing about, um, you know, uh, Islamophobia and, um, you know, who are being attacked online relentlessly for being uh, Jewish or, you know, who are writing about abortion and being sent, you know, the most horrific photos all the time. Like the abuse that others in my newsroom were getting writing about stuff that not that I don't think what I was doing was important because sports are power and sports are important. Um, but they were writing about it in, you know, without even the lens of the game and getting so much, uh, hate that I think for me, I always kept in perspective that I was, writing up you know I was removed from what they were doing and what they were doing is so much more important and in affecting so many more lives and that I don't know it just for some reason it, it's it's horrible because it's like their the abuse they were getting helped me keep my own in perspective right but I just think right. it was always easy to keep it to keep a lens because I wasn't in a world where sports were the only thing that mattered that's so true um I want to get back to that if we have time, but, but I want to move on. So, so you're at this job at Think Progress and obviously has its challenges, but at the same time, you're emboldened to write about things that you care about. And it's a place where people will read and respect your work. Um, six months ago, they shut down and you're left with, it was about six months ago, right? Yep. It was pretty, yeah. almost exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now you're looking back at a, at a, at a, industry that you've figured out at this point, you've worked in a number of places, you've freelanced for a number of places. Um, how do you decide instead of jumping right back into the fray, let me find the next site or newspaper or place that I want to apply to, or maybe you did that as well. I want to, I want to start my own thing. What was, what was the thought process when, when they shut down? It's, um, it's a few things. Number one, the day I, found out that Think Progress was for sale, which this was a few months before it closed. 
first doors was the same day, day I got a book deal. <laughs> so it was <laughs> a very uh, up and down day. Um, but this is a book I've been wanting to write for a long time. It's with Deacon Press, and it's about this current era of female athlete activism and how from, you know, Black Lives Matter to Equal Pay to Me Too to LGBTQ issues, like, it's really women in sports who are at the forefront of so many of these fights over the past few years. Um, and so, I, you know, I mean, I need to finish that book some point this year. And so I knew that it was not a good time in my life to make a huge left turn um, career-wise. You know, I would see a lot of job openings for an NFL beat reporter. And, you know, people would reach out to me asking me if I wanted to cover this one men's basketball team full-time. And then sometime I could – do the women's team, you know, and I just thought like, if I'm doing that, I'm never going to get this book done. Like I'm not going to be able to keep building this platform I built for myself. And, um, you know, I'm also, I co-host a feminist sports podcast, burn it all down. And you know that I started that when I was at think progress. So I just, I really felt like if there's any way to continue on the lane I'm in, I should do it. And I got lucky because for once I knew kind of the right people, which, you know, I mean, I feel like it sucks that it's who you know, but if there's this reason you do know the right person, like, don't, uh, you know, take advantage of it. And my former boss at Think Progress, Judd Legum, who had hired me, he had been doing a Substack newsletter for a, um, a, a year, I think, at that point. And he he thought that I would, because I had a dedicated following and because I had such a specific beat, that I would be make a good newsletter. And he connected me with the Substack people. And I talked to them for about a month. Um, you know, I kind of thought, no, I wouldn't want it to be all politics and sports. I want it to be just women in sports because that's what I enjoy covering the most. I think progress, that's what I think is the most needed. You know, there are plenty of Kaepernick columns coming out right now or, you know, whatever it is in men's sports. And so at some point I realized, um, I was just, I was freelancing for the athletic at the time. So I, the month after I think progress closed, I ended up being able to kind of full time cover the WNBA playoffs because I was covering the Washington Mystics and they won it all. So that was great. But that was a month where I didn't really have to face the fact that I didn't have a job anymore. And as that was getting finishing, I just kind of realized this opportunity with Substack is a great opportunity. Like, they are offering me to, to give me a few months of runway to see if I can work full time on a newsletter about women in sports and build enough audience to attract enough paid subscribers to keep doing it full time. And I realized like the only reason I wasn't doing it was kind of fear. Like I was just scared. And so I was like, I decided like that's not a good enough reason um, and just kind of went for it because I thought, you know, if this works, this will give me the opportunity to stay on this beat, to follow these um, stories, to dive even deeper um, into um, the history of women's sports, which I love to keep learning about. And, you know, to create a stable space for this work because, you know, if I go anywhere else full time or if I stay freelance, 50% of my energy is going to be focused towards fighting for the right to tell these stories, you know? And what if I just put all of that fight into building this platform um, and seeing if it works? So 
that is a very long way of saying um, I just I got lucky and got connected to Substack and decided to decided that there was really no downside. I should just go for it. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a it's a big take, you know. But the idea that you had Substack that was you know already in place and and had this idea to work with is at least a good start, right? Because I wouldn't even begin to know where to start a newsletter other than knowing the name of a couple places. But having a little bit of that lead time of talking to them probably helped get it get it set. So it's been, a, what, four months or so? Five months? Mm-hmm. Four months, yeah. Four months. Um, five months you're... since I decided to do it. Four months since I launched. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you just, you just tur- uh, flipped the switch on the subscription model. So I think people get one free one a week no matter what. And then there are two others per week that are for only subscribers. Um, that's a massive undertaking for a big company, right? This idea of, okay, we're switching to subscription model. You get, you know, maybe 10 free per whatever, and then you have to subscribe or you get a couple. Um, how do you decide that you believe that you've got enough people? And, and then how much work do you have to do? Because, you know, you're a writer, maybe not a, a business, you know, economics <laughs> mind. How much work do you have to do to figure out how to sustain and how many people you need to subscribe and how much money you can spend either to travel or to go cover something. Um, That's a whole separate job. Yeah. I mean, the truth is I am just kind of figuring it out as I go. So basically the strategy behind it that has worked for um, other newsletters that Substack has has realized has been the most successful is you want to build up your free list, which is why I spent the past four months building my free list, you know, um, doing three newsletters a week, every single one of them free, every single one of them has a hyperlink where I can share it on social media, just like I would any article I would write anywhere. Um, Just trying to get people to basically give me their email address and not pay anything. Um, I, you're told that, you know, probably about five to 8% of your free subscribers will convert to paid, maybe up to 10 if you're doing really, you know, if you have a really close relationship. I put off, going to paid subscribers about a month longer than I had originally planned a lot because I felt like I was at a little bit of a disadvantage for launching over the holidays. You know, I had like, you know, Thanksgiving week was really weird and then Christmas and New Year's, you know, it's just a lot of time where people weren't at their desks um, like they usually are. And also just because my free list wasn't as big as I wanted it to be. But um, I mean, to be completely transparent, a Substack had given me an advance so that I could work for a few months full time on it for free. And then once I start getting paid subscribers, you know, they'll take a percentage of that um, for a little while until that advance is, is paid back. So that's the, that was the model. And, um, but I finally got to the point where I was like, I've, I've got to flip the switch. Like, you know, I'm not growing quite as fast as I want to, but let's, let's see how many um, of my subscribers I can convert because I'm getting such good feedback my, the subscribers I have seem super duper invested and um, I just need to make the leap. And so I did um, on Wednesday, March 4th, not sure we'll see when people are listening for that. That will be my first like paid subscribers only newsletter. And uh, this past week and a half has all been kind of what's considered paid launch week. And it has gone really well so far. Like it awesome. has, um, been um the support i've gotten has just been so heartening so i've got a long way to go i'm not quite to the point where i can exhale fully i don't know if i'll ever be but um i'm getting to the point where i can do what you're talking about which is 
planning for the future, right? Really budgeting out how much money I'm going to have coming in, really figuring out what my travel schedule is. I think in the month of March, I'm just going to kind of travel as much as I can, um, you know, invest that money back into it. Uh, I, I was already up doing a lot of women's hockey reporting over the weekend. Um, but I do at the end of this month, once kind of the paid launch session is over and I have more of a sense of how much money I'm going to have coming in, you know, I need to do a little bit more um, budgeting and, and figuring that out. Because I don't think a lot of newsletters travel a lot, a lot of newsletter right. writers. Um, but it's so but important specifically think- because, and, and this is what I want to transition into quickly as we're sort of running out of time here and there's so much to get to, uh, how, how much more difficult it is to cover a lot of this stuff because you can't do it from home because there isn't anyone right. else doing it. You're writing about, right. you know, trying to break an attendance record and women's cr- cricket in Australia. You're writing about, you know... Um, women's pro hockey leagues that don't get a ton of coverage. And so a lot of what you do to open up people's eyes to the coverage of the athletes and sports that they otherwise might not get kind of requires you to go above and beyond it. And I want to talk, I want you to talk a little bit about what you're learning uh, in terms of having to cover things that don't get the front page everywhere else. Yeah. First of all, I'm realizing like there are, there is an audience. It's all about how you frame it. And it's why I get frustrated when, People say, like, there's no audience, there's no audience. And I, I want to look at other people in our industry sometimes, Sarah, and just be like, your job is to find, is to frame it, right? You know, right, to tell the story, to, like, to be interesting. Story. Yeah. I mean, how many times <laughs> have you had to talk about something that you didn't find particularly interesting, Sarah? Like, but right. your job is to make it interesting. I mean, I, I love your Sabrina and Effie rant because I just kept thinking about what if a woman went on and, like, mispronounced the name of the top male college basketball player? Like, <laughs> what would, you know, their life uh, be like, you know, a female sports reporter? So, I think it just, it frustrates me because it's just like the stories are there, um, you know, and, but yeah, I don't want to do this sitting from my couch. I want to get there. I want to see these infrastructures. I want to see the women's final four and compare it to the women's college world series. And then, you know, compare that to the, you know, find the WNBA finals. I want to be there on the grassroots level at looking at new leagues that are launching up and trying to do things differently. Um, you know, I want to, go to Olympic trials if I can and talk to female athletes who are working, you know, have very, very little money um, and are fighting their way out and clawing against the system to make it, make it work in sports like shot put and, you know, um, fencing and other kind of obscure things. Like I want to tell these stories. And so traveling is going to be a part of that. And that just means I need to work harder to um, get more paid subscribers. But ultimately I think, the investment pays off because what I'm asking people to spend is around seven or eight dollars a month. If you do a yearly subscription, it's just six dollars a month. Um, and there's there's a discount going on right now. I call it the Superd uh, launch code, which is ten percent off forever because she's number ten and she will play forever. God, um, I hope so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't even want to think about what would happen. But uh, and so you know we're it's it's not that much money, and I want it to be an investment for people to feel like I am really making the most of it. Like you are really going to subscribe to this newsletter and get stuff that you literally cannot get anywhere else. And you are going to get up close and personal um, insight to events that you can't go to and that national media isn't covering um, as closely. You know, you, if you go to the Super you don't need to go to the Super Bowl to get the feel of the Super Bowl because right. there's literally – 
24-7 coverage <laughs> on five different networks. Um, so I, I think that is the value that I'm going to add. And right. I think people well, are and then also, that really well. Yeah. It's not just the coverage of the sports and the athletes, but the other stuff you're doing, the hashtag covering the coverage, where you talk about what newspapers and other outlets are doing and how they're not getting to the you know percentage of coverage of women and, and, and female athletes that we would like. All that stuff is just as important because like we talked about before, it's not just knowing that there's a problem. It's understanding why we continue to perpetuate it sort of subconsciously. And part of that is just calling people out, making them aware of the discrepancy there, you know, making them aware of the ways that they could change behavior. And then a lot of people are actually willing to do it, right? There's some people that go and show up at panels and conferences and learn about the dearth of coverage and say, in my newsroom, I'm going to be in charge of introducing more stories like this. And so, so much of the importance is just shining a spotlight on it. And that's what you're doing, which is Fantastic. I really recommend it. I've been, uh, I subscribed and I, I follow power plays and I'm, I get it in my inbox. And, um, I think people would be, uh, blown away by the awesome stuff you're doing. Uh, before we let you go, you have to do okay. the one thing everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, what's your desert island album? You can only have one. This, I feel like this is too recent to be true, but it is the High Women album. I cannot stop listening to it. It's good. Prisoner of the Moment works it's... for this one for sure. <laughs> Number two, <Yeah. laughs> what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Empathy. Ooh, good one. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, my God. Um... I just in general, I I can't think of any one specific that's more, but my inability to finish projects that I start, Um, you know, I I think my twenties was spent. Yeah. (laughs) The the failure of not even trying. That's my biggest failure. Yeah. Uh, Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No, but I, I did have a really drunk friend slap me once, and that was the weirdest feeling. I was like, what is this? <laughs> oh, uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Sue Bird. I just want to know what it's like to be Sue Bird. <laughs> yeah, I think we all do. I think we all would like to be yeah. Sue Bird. Uh, yeah. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my God. So the book that I was telling you about earlier, I, um, the, there was arguments between my family, their family didn't all agree that like I should be writing this book, their families. And some of them did, some of them didn't. My publisher dealt with most of that stuff. Um, I was really young and really just like not engaged. And I was doing a speaking event about the book at the, uh, a tennis hall of fame event. And I, this woman, I was getting really weird vibes from her. And it turns out she was like the granddaughter of one of the guys who was there to publicly bash me about writing the book. And so I called (laughs) on her at the end. And I then, because this is what I do in every single situation that involves any type of conflict, I start crying. Oh, no. And it was the most uncomfortable, embarrassing horrifying. Well, I hope she felt terrible about it. I hope she took no pleasure in it. She realized what a jerk she was. Um, I I don't think that's true, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, I want more more energy and more enthusiasm and more more zest for life. I can get okay. bogged down. All right, I could be your life coach on that. I think I'm full of zest. I got a lot of zest. You are, I got, yeah. I have too much zest. I will give you some. We'll have a meeting about it. Uh, number eight, <laughs> I need to learn how to relax. That's my problem, so we're opposites in that. Um, number eight, if you could play commish of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? <laughs> right now, because we're in the old pandemic, wash your hands. Yes. Everybody, all the time. Just wash your hands. <laughs> Start I didn't there. realize how many people Start might there. not be watching your hands. <laughs> uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? I mean, you know, I think there were little times, like, growing up, you know, honestly, I know, I'm just going to say it. Launching this newsletter is the scariest thing I've ever done. Uh, yeah. It's just me. You're asking for people to just support you. Uh, it seems it's so vulnerable. It's so scary. There's nowhere to hide. And the last uh, four months have been absolutely terrifying. Love it. I love it. You're, it's, it's right now, actually. Like right now, currently, yeah, most like right now, today. <laughs> terrifying. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, I think caring and determined and resilient. Ooh, those are all very good. And finally, the bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone I should talk to that's great and interesting and fun and cool? Okay, I mean, I I have to say my, it, it's cheesy, I know, but my Burn It All Down podcast co-host, every, I know you've had Jessica Luther on. Um, yeah, she's amazing. Shereen, yeah, Shereen Ahmed, who uh, is a Muslim sports activist and sports writer, has a phenomenal story. Dr. Amir Rose Davis, who writes all about, um, she's a professor at Penn State, and she writes all about um, black women that sports history has kind of forgotten and, um, and studies so many of those in her book. I cannot wait for it um, about, like, black female athletes in the Jim Crow South. Um, and so she's just got so many good stories. And then um, Brenda Elsie, who's also Dr. Brenda Elsie, is a professor, and she works, she's like an expert on um, football in Latin America. And he's written this book, Football Era. And I mean, honestly, I, I get that I'm biased, but I talk to them every single week for the podcast and learn something new and fascinating every single week. And I want to hear what they would say you, to you because you ask so many probing questions and can, can call it a podcast. So that's that'd be yeah. good. <laughs> all right. Those are all great suggestions. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me. Good luck with the newsletter. It's, it's spectacular. I'm really looking forward to it, especially during Olympics times. And as the, you know, new WNBA CBA starts to take hold in this new season, as the women's soccer team continues to fight for equal pay and in their lawsuits. So, um, lots of topics that you will be on top of and, uh, and it's going to be fantastic. Thanks so much for giving me some time. Thank you so, so much for having me, Sarah. It was, uh, it's a bucket list item to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's another concert gripe, and I think I've talked about people's hair touching me. I don't like other people's hair touching me. I've talked about people complaining. I think about tall people standing in front of them, namely me and my husband, where we create this like triangular vortex behind us where no one stands because they can't see over us. Not our fault. This is just – we're just tall, and we're going to watch the show, and you, you just need to figure it out around us. Uh, but this week – 
It's about people who talk during slow, nice, romantic songs. Uh, beautiful, melodic songs, which are usually my favorite. I, I, I have a tendency to occasionally cry at concerts. And it's usually during those. I want to hear them. I want to enjoy them and absorb them. And if it's not your favorite song and you're just loudly talking right over the beautiful lyrics and uh, the melodies that I'm trying to enjoy, it's a problem. In fact, one day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I can't react in the moment because then I'm being loud telling them not to be loud. And then it's just, you know, multiplying. And then all of a sudden, nobody can hear the beautiful music. The first time this happened uh, that was at a sporting event was when James Taylor was singing the national anthem at the, uh, the Winter Classic, a hockey game at Fenway. And I literally almost fought a dude in front of me because he wanted to talk through the whole thing, uh, which wasn't cool. And it's not cool when you're, say, at Jason Isbell, which is the show that I was at on Saturday, listening to this beautiful song, you know, vampires and people are talking and drunk and spilling beer. And so, you know, I get it. Sometimes we're all overserved, And I get it. Sometimes you don't like the same music. But, you know, if it feels like a chill moment, shut the f*** up. Okay? All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Be quiet during nice, beautiful songs. Or go somewhere else. There. I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review and leave the dilemma in your review. Not that many people do this. I have not been fixing listener dilemmas in a while. Are you scared? Do you not have any dilemmas? There's no problems out there? I doubt that. Write me. Send me. I want to fix your problems. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 